Previously on the Tony Kornheiser Show. And it's called Dave Barry's Only Travel Guide You'll Ever Need. And I go, you want to get rid of this? And she says something or other. And I start looking for the autograph. See if there's an autograph. Don't know that there's an autograph. I don't recognize the book. I don't know when we got the book. Here is what the autograph says. For Carol, with vivid memories of prom night, which you should probably not tell Tony about. <laughs> Always Dave Barry. That's brilliant. The Tony Kornheiser Show is on now. And we have a haiku from Shad. Clemenza might say, forget about the book, but keep the inscription. <laughs> it's the cannoli line from Clemenza. So let me follow up on this for a second. So I, I you know, a, apparently some of the people who listen to the show communicated through the internet. Well, I don't know how to do this. With the Lebetard show. Because I had said that I called Dan and I needed Dave's number. And mm-hmm. Anyway. Um, one thing leads to another, and on my phone I get a text from Dave Barry. and says, Dan said you needed to talk to me, what's up? So I call him, and I tell him about this. And I just say it's just so wonderful, it's so funny. And I, I know I've, and then we chatted about the band that he's in, and, I, and I, he said, you know, I'm old. And I said, well, I'm old too. I said, but you're still playing in a band. He says, we play every two years. We don't play that often. <laughs> it's a nice schedule. But he is, I think I've said this a number of times, Dave Barry and Jim Valvano were the two funniest stand-around people I ever met who were not comedians. I mean, it's different if you're a, a professional comedian. I expect you to make me laugh at all times. And it must be onerous to professional comedians because everyone expects that of professional comedians. But in terms of regular human beings... With day jobs. I, Jim Valvano and Dave Barry are the funniest people I've ever been. Dave Barry is just hysterically funny all the time. And we had maybe a 10-minute conversation that was so pleasant and uplifting. Made me so very happy. And I've told everybody who I talk to, I describe the inscription. I read the inscription. I carry the book around with me. I read the inscription to people. It makes me very, very happy. So thank you to Dave and thank you to Dan for doing that. I had a few things, a few things to talk about. We'll ask Wilbon about uh, Wimbledon. You know, I got this note from my friend Adam Mandel, and he said, who are you rooting for in terms of Kyrgios and um, Djokovic? He said the unvaccinated something or the maniac, whatever it was. (laughs) And I said, actually, I'm rooting for neither. To me, this is a Johnny Depp, Amber Heard situation. (laughs) And I would just say, get off my television, get out of the tennis business, just leave me alone. Um, you know, Djokovic's the best player in the world. I don't think anybody thinks he isn't. He's certainly the best player in the world on grass and hard courts. He is not necessarily on clay, as Nadal proved, but he is on the other surfaces, and he's got another major. And now people are beginning to bleed for him that he can't play the U.S. Open because he's not vaccinated. Think of your own health, people. Think of the rules and think of your own health. He's got every right not to be vaccinated. And the government has every right to say, we're not going to let you in. You know, it's, he's flamboyantly unvaccinated. Okay. Okay. There are, how many times do I have to say this? There are consequences for everything we say and do. And this is one of those consequences. And he accepts this. Yes. He hasn't even, com- he has not, to his credit, publicly complained about this. He has not. He's not a vile person like Kyrgios. 
who spits on people. Yeah, what's frustrating, though, is the direction of new variants just makes it harder to take that that sort of party line stance. That's right. What the rules were, and you didn't. There's do the BA three variant now, or the BA two variant. It's going to kill all BA5. of us. BA five, whatever it is, going to kill all of us. So, um, and by the way, so he'll not only probably not play the U.S. Open. But I don't think he can actually get into Australia. I don't think he's going to be allowed to have a visa okay. after. So his next major that he would be able to play in it's would French. be the French. Yeah. Or? Or Wimbledon. Or get a vaccine. Or get a vaccine. Yes. Okay. okay. Um, my, my golf course is closed. Columbia Country Club is now closed. It's officially closed. Um, it's not going to open again until Labor Day, maybe. Um, so I'm done playing there for the summer, which is my way of saying, who wants to invite me to play somewhere? <laughs> And let me consider these invitations. Have sticks, we'll drive. Yeah, you know, I mean, in case anybody wants to do this. I played yesterday. I played with Mike McLaughlin and Scott Sadler and my dermatologist, Bud Giblin. I was terrible on the front. I shot either 48 or 50, something like that. I didn't bother to keep score. Something like 48 or 50 on the front. I parred six of the next seven holes and missed a four-footer on 14 for another par. Then I collapsed because I walked. And I haven't walked in a long time. And it wasn't that hot or anything like that. But I was tired. And 17 and 18, if I didn't pick up, I would have shot 15 on each hole. So I would have, there would have been no good score or anything like that. But Michael, I parred six of seven. I'm surprised you, the you actually putted out that four-footer. Oh, yeah, I did because it was to win the hole. But given, uh, given the issues with the stroke I saw when you came by our house and I put you on the, the perfect practice putting Yeah, it's mat, really nice. See that out-to-in stroke, it, it makes sense. That was nice. I appreciated that. Um, then I watched, I came back and I watched the Nats. And the Nats lost and they lost, you know, Every time they lose, I say this, and they lost again because they just keep losing. They lose and they lose and they lose. Um, Austin Riley hit a home run in the eighth inning, I believe, off Kyle Finnegan, who'd had a very good seventh inning, gave up a home run to make it 3-3, and then they went into extra innings, and then in the twelfth inning, they lost. Uh, They could not score, even though they had a man on second to start every inning, just like the Braves. And they got a man to third every inning. Every inning and couldn't, couldn't bring them in. Nobody on the team knows how to bunt. Nobody, nobody's any good. And, and I just wanted to say this. I mean, I was texting wildly to Chuck Todd, but Chuck said, basically, leave me alone. I'm in Pensacola on vacation. Leave me alone. I can't stand it. I can't just get involved in this. The Washington Nationals won the World Series in late October, if not early November of 2019. That is not yet three calendar years away. Not yet. They have the second worst record in all of baseball. The Cincinnati Reds, who started out something like 1-19, have a better record than the Washington Nationals. The Baltimore Orioles, the best last place team in the majors, have a much better record. Kansas City, where they say they're going to fire the manager, Kansas City has a better record. The Nats are 30-58. and 58. Whatever they are in their last 20, I don't know. But they're 1-9 in their last 10. And these are division games. Their record inside the division is horrific. Nigel, if you could look that up, it's unbelievably terrible. The only team with a better record than the Nats in baseball right now is Oakland, which has a payroll of $3.65. Yes. And they have one fewer win than the Washington Nationals. They're 29 and 58. The Nats are 30 and 58. They're 24 games out in their division. They are 13 games out of last, out of fourth place with Miami, who they lose to all the time. What is 
You're you love the Nats. What is your sense of this? It just comes back to that 2019 World Series where you never got to have the year-long tour de force celebration. Because of COVID. And because of that, it accelerated the the dismantling of all those pieces. And, and right now you come back to, I, you know, we had someone who came out to look at our roof. And I was talking to him about the, the departure of Schwarber after the injury uh, that, at the beginning the do- of first last domino. July. And that was the first domino. And that opened the door to make it... To make it Worth talking about. Do we start to deal Scherzer and Trey Turner? Now you see all the 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 pomp and circumstance around Turner and the and the All Star Game in Los Angeles. I think he just celebrated a birthday and you just see him wearing the Dodger blue and you go, how quickly it turned. And I'm happy you brought up the Orioles because they're one of the best stories in baseball now. They just won, I think, eight in a row. They swept. They won the, under. They swept the Angels. They actually have a path to the wild card. Sure. And how. You know, it seems like it was forever ago that we're talking about that they didn't put Zach Britton in in that in that playoff game. That was and Showalter, right? That's the yes. same situation where you start to say their division is is freaky oh. good in oh. terms of the top four. And now you look at the uh, you look at the Nats and you go, the Marlins have been very steady for three years, uh, two years really, but they got into the playoffs in that wild in that uh, in that COVID year. And you start to say, why can't we do what the Orioles are doing? And you look at the changes they've made with uh, with the with the scouting and how many more draft picks they're about to pick up and how good, like when they brought up Adley Rutschman and you start to see they actually have a path to success in the hardest ba- the hardest division to win. And a beautiful ballpark still. Oh. Uh-huh. I mean, everybody really likes to I want to take there. the boys up there. It's really but nice. But now it's hard to get tickets probably. Oh, I don't know that that's true. I don't know. Did you look this up? Seven and thirty-three. <laughs> it's unbelievably bad. Yeah. It's only going to get worse now. They seven and thirty-three in the division where you make your money. They do have a winning record against the Central at nine and eight. So they just need to focus on those matches. Well, you don't get to play to be them. Fair, more the little. division does make their money off of this team. <laughs> yes, that's it's, terrible. I mean, it's seven it's, and thirty-three. Yeah, that's just awful. Now, let, let's okay. Phillies are just circling those games the last two months. Sure, you have a record like that. If you're not, if your team's not for sale, you have to consider making changes at the top. The the team they've abdicated all responsibility. They've extended the contracts or picked up the contracts of Mike Rizzo and Davey Martinez, and there's no pressure to win. And if you listen to the broadcast or watch the broadcast as I do, you hear from the people doing the broadcast. Everything's pretty good. Everything's pretty good. You know, okay, he lost a few here and there, but, you know, the line's moving pretty soon. There's another knock. You know, there's a front door slide. You know, and you just go, okay. 7-33 and 33 in the division is disgraceful. Yes. They, were, they won the World Series less than three calendar years ago. We even take the World Series away for five years plus. They made plus. the playoffs they were, they were dominating the division. Yeah. And can I can I just add one thing about that World Series? And I watch, and I'm not I'm not I'm not angry. Anger isn't it. Yeah. I'm you know I'm distressed and disheartened, but I'm not angry. No, but games like they, yesterday, you, you start to say like you've lost the series. You can win one game. You you can put two runners across home in the tenth or the eleventh to try and make it a little harder. All the Braves had to do was get one across. Yeah. Just and for that World Series win. And I say this not as a Nationals fan. Finish the fight. Well, it was a great, I mean, it's a great story. Yes. And you got no bounce from that because of the pandemic. Right. There was no sort That's of right. like celebration for it. It feels yeah. like it was 20 years ago, honestly. And, and I, I feel terribly bad. two bad. players on the team, everyday players who remain. Victor Robles, who's not a major league hitter. You, you can tell me he's a great fielder. He is a great fielder. He's not 
He's not much better fielder, if he's better fielder at all, than Michael A. Taylor. He's not even the hitter Michael A. Taylor is, and Michael A. Taylor stinks and strikes out. That's why they called him Michael K. Taylor, because <laughs> he struck out all the time and hit meaningless home runs. Right, except for that grand slam in Chicago. Yeah, okay. And Juan Soto. He's the other guy. Yeah. It's less than three calendar years, and there's there's that's it. Yeah. Those are the only two players who remain everyday players. Well, fast forward to when my boys are in high school, and I wonder what the effect is going to be on this. And like you, you walk around town right now, and you still see uh, this this generation of elementary school, middle school kids wearing Ovechkin jerseys. Oh, Ovechkin oh, jerseys, right. Yep. The pull of the cabs over this town has been huge. And then you started to see the Nats with the Juan Soto t-shirts, the jerseys. Football's done. We now go to play yes. t-ball without the t, according to Walkman. Right. We go outside to, to do uh, underhand pitch, and I like, to, I like to burn them on the outside corner. Kid can't turn on that. Uh, and he's, they're playing as Victor Robles and Josh Bell. It's well, cute. Josh Bell is yeah. leaving. Oh, Josh sure. Bell at the deadline is oh, valuable yes. to someone. Yes. You know, but they, they everybody else who are He certainly they? ends innings early. Yeah. I was so so waiting for Tanner Rainey to give up the winner. He didn't. I was so waiting for him to do that yesterday. And I think he pitched the 10th and the 11th, actually. So I think so. I'm not certain. All right, we'll take a break. Is Wilbon joining us when we return? Wilbon is, Michael yes. Wilbon, when we return. Um, I had something else to say, and I've already forgotten it because I'm old. I'm Tony. Oh, yeah, here. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday this week. We're going to add a Tuesday show and drop a Friday show. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. I'm Tony Kornheiser. Check out our new NBA show, Beyond the Arc, part of the CBS Sports Podcast Network, where you can find me, John Gonzalez, NBA insider Bill Ryder, and Ashley Nicole Moss, five days a week talking all things NBA. Whether you're looking for insightful discussions, upbeat commentary, breaking news, interviews, or coverage of all the biggest stories in the NBA, our new show is the place to be five days a week. Download and follow Beyond the Arc on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. You're listening to The Tony Kornheiser Show. This comes to us from Greg Flynn, who writes, After years of listening to the great music you showcase on the podcast, I'm excited to make a contribution to the collection by sharing songs from Chris Leggett and the Copper Line, a Richmond, Virginia-based band. When I moved to Richmond years ago, our next-door neighbor had a 10-year-old son, Chris, who I had the opportunity to watch grow up across the driveway. I'd often stand outside talking to his dad about fishing and music, not knowing all along Chris was building his own skills as a songwriter, guitar player, and singer. Fast forward 17 years later, I'm sitting at my desk listening to local radio when I hear a familiar voice in the background. I quickly realize the kid next door is now on the radio with songs from a recently released album from the idle mind and that's a great story and that it's like the sands story (laughs) it's like sands with the driveway and the baseball basketball player that's right yeah so thank you to greg flynn for sending us chris leggett and the copper line this is called whiskey breath it is from michael wilbon we'll play him later in the show normally i'd ask wilbon a thousand different questions about stuff in the news but why don't you tell people mike where you were the last few days and what it was like Tony, I was in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, Myrtle Beach, which I had never been to. And I told Matthew uh, last week that uh, he said, Dad, you ever been to Myrtle Beach? I said, no. I said, this is one of the few times, this is maybe the first time in 20 years that I've been someplace in the United States of America that I had never been before. No college that teams. happened for me. Yeah, there's no college there, so yeah. Yeah, I understand. Yeah, I mean, that's not college. I mean, it's just, just you know. No, but I'm I mean, you wouldn't have covered guy. a game. Yeah, and you wouldn't go that far to the beach. I mean, you wouldn't have I, to. I, I, I don't go to the beach at all. I'm not okay. a beach guy. So there you go. And so I just ha- hadn't been there. 
So he flew. He did not drive like a lot of parents from D.C. drove. And Matthews, and he's, he's, he's 14. He's playing in a 15 and under league. So he's, these kids are playing up a year. And so, you know, this is it's amazing, Tony, this AAU culture. And while I've been able to observe it from outside of it, just as a guy who covers sports and you're used to dealing with parents in college, big-time players who come from certain programs, certain AAU programs around the country. But to get it, to, to, to be a parent now of a kid who's involved in it, a team in the DMV, Prospect U, Coach Doug, and it's, it's, it's really an amazing program. I won't go too, too, too far on and on about it, even though it's, it's just wonderful for him and wonderful for a lot of kids. But they, all of Coach Doug's teams, and it's like a 17 and under, 16 and under, 15 and under, and Matthews on the 15 under, all, all these kids go. So you got an army that's there. And, and a, lot of, a lot of programs have, have, have three teams like that, age-appropriate. And so, Tony, they, they gather at this site in, 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 in South Carolina, and I called you from there yep. to say, oh, my God, there's eight courts going. There's games on eight courts simultaneously. The thing that's different, because something happens every year as it evolves and grows, is that the games are on TV now. They're on something called Baller TV that's on YouTube. So you, your kid's on television, sort of. Sort of. Yeah. Yeah. Sort of. Yeah. And so also, Tony, in, in chairs, as I walk into the court and I'm just, you know, agog, they're college coaches. Yeah. Because they're there. The 17 and under kids, by the way, the 17 and unders, as somebody explained to me, oh, well, the 17 and unders, they're not watching them. Because at 17, if they're that good, they've already been seen, scouted, recruited, signed, or committed. Right. They're looking at the 16 and unders. Maybe the 15 and unders. And you've got just hundreds of kids there at this the convention center and... It's a it's a sports center. It, it is there to accommodate. You know, Myrtle Beach, which I've never been to, um, has this in baseball, which you knew. I guess Michael might have played there when you were going through this as a parent. They got soccer. They got it all. They got everything. This is they the business 20, of 20, sports. This is, youth. this is like walking into another world for yeah, me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I'm sure this was. Very, I can tell your reaction to my astonishment was just, you were like, what, where have you been, dude? Welcome to the universe of teen, of, of teenage sports. Yeah. And yeah. so, what What you know, this has done, what I know you will agree with, is what this has done, it has taken out any initiative that kids had to gather together and play on their own on the street. That's right. It's done. To you totally got to have a uniform. You got to have yeah. a travel schedule. You yeah. got to have a team. Now, I am philosophically, if I had to lean one way or another, I'd lean against the AAU. I do. I, I lean against it because of what yeah. you said, just yeah. for that reason. Yeah. Well, there's another reason, funny. too. AAU players, mostly their mentality is I don't care if I win as long as I show well and somebody wants me. So they're Tony, not even brought up to be winners. On Wednesday, we get off a plane. And there's something called a showcase game. And the showcase game basically is not for kids who are 14. It's for older kids because the, this is where the college coaches are. Tony, right. entire staffs yeah. are there. 
And there, look, there, there's some kids there who, yeah, they're going to play, you know, they're going to play high division one, you know, and you watch a kid, you say, where's that kid? And, you know, Maryland and Georgetown are both in, into it over him. Or that's the Kansas State staff over there, and they're, they're here, right. and Indiana's here. And last right. year, Chris Collins is here for Northwestern because he's looking at a kid from Prospect U. I think you have to go if you're a coach or send somebody. I think you have to. You have to go if you're a coach. And Tony, you have to play if you're a kid. The days of what you and I did, they're, 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 they're over. They don't do that. They're I like, know. Jalen Rose says something to me that was so great. Jalen Rose has, a, has, a, has a, a take that one of the reasons that guys in the pros get hurt so he thinks easily now is because they never played on concrete or asphalt. They only played on wood. Right. Indoors, and, sure. they, and they're not their legs. They're they're not conditioned like people were for uh, for eighty years on asphalt and concrete. I said, Jalen, I never thought of this. He said, Just think about it. What is, what is how often does Matthew play on concrete or asphalt? I mean, never in his life. He doesn't know what that is. But you're in the gym. You're there for. I think. I think prospect. You played seven games in four days. I think, including two yesterday. And Tony, our team is fourteen. It's fourteen years old, and you know they haven't had half of them haven't hit a growth spurt yet. If most of them, and you know Matthew's a scrawny little kid. He's five eight. He probably weighs one hundred and ten. And they step on the court last night, Tone, and there's two six seven kids, <laughs> six <Yeah>. seven, because <laughs> while my kid and his so coach Doug is a marvelous, marvelous coach and teacher. I, I I actually call, I texted I was texting the Doc Rivers and you know Eddie Tascott and people who've done this people who've been parents first but also involved in basketball and I was just marveling at the way my coach teaches those kids how to play and so they're out there against some monsters and it's okay they know they're going up against this because they're scrawny little fourteen year old kids and they're going up against just one year makes a huge difference and they're winning games they win games I think they were. I think they were four and two, or four and three, in the games over the weekend. But again, these things were on TV. The parents' tone, the parents are so invested. They're so committed. There are parents out there, and usually the moms. Let me say this. And I saw plenty of dads. One guy comes up to me at one point and says, "Will Bond, tell the orange man I love him. I'm a little. I love him." <laughs> I said, "I'm going to tell him tomorrow on the podcast. Just tell him I'll be. I'm going to listen." I said I want to pass it on, so I just did. So, the, so I mean, I, I've seen this in hockey, and I've seen it in soccer, and I've seen it oh in golf, God. and I've seen it in tennis, and I don't particularly like it. I have a, a couple of theories. I remember in Little League when Michael was uh, playing in Little League in the Eastern Regionals in 1998. There was a kid on the Delaware team. There was a shortstop on Delaware. Remember this kid? The kid was shaving. <laughs> And he was, yeah, he, was he was so – this kid was a one. great player. I mean, this kid, you said to yourself, man, if there's yeah. any kid who's going to make it, this kid is going to – he was already 6'1". He was yeah. 12 years old. He was 6'1". Well, so I understand how they can be monstrous. But I will also say this. I would go – and it's not one step further. I'll go to the side one step with Jalen Rose as to why people get hurt because they only play one sport, and they don't develop musculature right. in right. the way that a guy who plays all the sports does. They don't. Exactly, I totally agree with that. They don't. Totally agree. And we talk about it, but most of the parents' tone were just terrific. They were, they, they were, you know, I met parents 
Matthew was involved in probably the signature sporting event of his little life at this point. Sure. Where his team is playing uh, just a tremendous team from North Carolina. And they're down 18. And they come back to tie the game in overtime, take the lead. And it goes double overtime. Tony, you know what overtime, I guess at all AAU tournaments is, right? Uh, it's one minute in overtime. That's all? Sudden death in double overtime. Oh, okay. That's really the OT is sudden death. They lose in sudden death. And it's just a rousing game. I am nearly thrown out of the gym on a block charge call. Yeah. And I that, went after the ref. soccer. Yeah. I went after the ref. Soccer. And you just, I can't do that. I cannot no, do that. No. I'm recognized. I can't no. do it. Most of the refs you're I talk on, to after You're on boiler TV. Parents, can't do it. I can't do it. I can't right. do it. But I went crazy. <laughs> so after the game, here's the emotional game. Our kids lose. They're crushed. They're heartbroken. The other kids immediately swarm me to get a picture. Yeah. yeah. So uh-huh. there is your kids, your teammate's father taking pictures with, with the, the winning team. <laughs> They're heartbroken. And then this stuff goes right onto social media. It's just, it's, it's the whole experience of it was amazing. But I, but I, I you know, one of the things, so I'm lucky. I love our team with Coach Doug and Coach Chris and Coach Jamal. I love what they do with our kids. There's no, there's no shoe stuff. There's, there's not, the sneaker companies do not run his team. He does. And he teaches them how to play. And, and so there's not kids playing for, you know, four different teams and doing this stuff. But Wow. I mean, you, again, you knew all of this because of Michael in baseball. Well, I've, I've seen it, but the one thing you told me that I, I, I found interesting. I didn't know what this was. The thing that you were blown away by is how many kids can shoot threes. Yes. Right? You know what? Yeah, there's a kid, there's a kid on, 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 on the prospect you on the 16 and on the team. He's, going, he's being scouted by everybody. Everybody. And so this kid, he had, he had 43 in a game. That looked so effortless. There's a kid on Matthew's team. He's 14. I called him John Stockton because he was 12. And he's 14. He probably weighs 130 pounds, if that. Tony, these kids stroke the three. The big kid's a big kid. You know, at, this, at 14, you know, 6'4", six, 6'5". Six, they're they're going to be 6'9", but they're, they're not now. Tony's shooting the three, and it's effortless, and it's bottom of the net. The net just snaps. See, this is the and interesting go, thing God. to me. We had this conversation with Tim Legler. And, and what you said before about growth spurts, if you don't get up over 6'2", you know, you're, you're not a D1 player anymore. You're no. a D2 or a D3. You may be the greatest player in the world, but there's a guy three inches taller than you that's just as good as you are, and he's yeah. playing D1, right? So when you talk yeah. about that, that's the genetic crapshoot, whether or not you're going to be big yeah. enough. Listen, every day, every day, my son is worried about growth every day. And I'm like, dude, let's control the stuff you can control. Play golf, Matthew. Play golf. I mean, he wants, you know, this is what, and Tony, every kid, all the kids on his team, the amazing thing about his team is that nope, there's one kid over 6'3", and they win the games. No, they're it's well amazing. Coached. They're playing the kids. There's always two kids. Tony, their kids yesterday on a 15-year-old team, they're throwing lob passes to a guy who's six seven, two hands looking in the rim. <laughs> and you're like, what? What are we? What are we watching here? 
So I look. I, I, I'm in gyms, obviously, all my life. But the feeling of it, I, I really, you know, you like watching your kid play, but you don't. It is nerve wracking. You know, it's 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 nerve wracking. It's uh, for for all the reasons that we're talking about, and, and it's different. And Tony, we're doing this again in two weeks. In two weeks. Oh, where is, now, where's the next one? Where's Virginia the... Beach. Oh, yeah. So we're sure. not flying. We're going to get in the car and drive to Virginia Beach. Yeah. Allen Iverson will throw out the first ball. That's What's his that? home. Allen Iverson will throw out yeah, the I first mean, ball. Yeah, tide water. I mean, yeah. so, and, and while this is going on, what you, I'm getting in the car, and we're driving from the hotel to the gym. There's a family with, uh, you know, next door to us in the hotel, and that kid is from this area, and he's playing baseball there. And then it's, there's another kid down the hall in the hotel, and he's playing soccer there. Your nephew and, and, did this in Cooperstown. Yeah, Jordan you go to did these this. you go to these baseball tournaments from uh, again. Look, I'm not saying this is a bad thing. It's thrilling. It's exciting. But, it is thrilling. But, it's thrilling. But it has taken away all self-starting initiative from kids to play sports. You know what they don't do, Tom? They don't. They, they don't do this. They don't. With all the ways they can reach each other, you know, texting, whatever, you know, DMs, they don't call each other and just gather and go no, to a court. No, no, they go don't. Go to a, a, a playground, go to a field. They don't do that. And it just makes me sad that they don't. And, you know, I, look, I'm, it's, I probably was the oldest parent there out of the hundreds of kids. I was probably the oldest parent. I mean, that. The, the fathers, some of the guys I love that I met, they're 40. Yeah. They're late 30s, they're early 40s. So I'm the oldest guy there. I'm the only one maybe who even understands what you're talking about. Yeah, even no. the, par- the fathers, the mothers and the fathers, they don't get it. They don't, because they didn't live it this way. They didn't live it like we did. And Tony, he mentioned his last thing, which is, you, you didn't have this for Michael, because this is, just comes after they're all videotaping their kids the whole game. Uh, the whole game. There are people standing with an iPad videotaping every play. I don't know how this works. I don't know what the economics uh, of the backgrounds of the parents and the children are in these things. I, yeah, I got a glimpse of that, too. But a lot of them are looking at scholarships to college or not going to college, I'm sure. Like, you ought to be thankful that wherever Matthew wants to go to school, even if it's the Berkeley School of Music in Boston, you're going to write a check, and it's okay. That's right. That's right. It's so okay. I'm glad you mentioned this real quickly. So, I mean, I know, you and I know who we covered and where people came from. Yeah, yeah. So, there's not many in this way of coming up, and it's almost entirely this way, the system Tone, the system is expensive. Yes, it is. And they're not Moses yes, Malone. There's not Moses Malone and Allen Iverson and LeBron James. No. There's, there's, there's so few. Tone, I listen to the kids. I meet the parents. Tone, they're not rich. But you know what? There's a reason in the NBA now. Half the league seems populated by Clay Thompson, son of Michael, and Steph Curry, son of Dell, and Steph Curry, son of Dell. There's a reason why, and Gary Payton Jr., Gary Payton II. There's a reason why. Tone, the, 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 these, these courts and fields are populated by kids who have. Because you have to have, because you have to afford this stuff. I know how much money I spent this weekend. Yeah. And it's yeah. no different for any mm. parent. 
So, so it's like, so you mentioned that it's just astonishing. So I'm listening to kids, Tone, and the play, it's not the playground. And yes, there are kids still playing on the playground. Yes, but how but do those a... kids get, I mentioned this to Eddie Tapscott, how do, how do those kids get through the system that produces the kids who are being recruited, who go to play for the places where they're then scouted? Oh, that's that. That's simple because college scouts still go to the playgrounds yeah, every no, once not, in a while, that's not, and then that's some people the give place. scholarships. Some people, some of these AAU teams give scholarships, yeah. Yeah, they and that's do. how it works. And and that's how it works. It's it's like if you basketball is relatively inexpensive in terms of equipment. I yeah, mean, hockey, hockey is yeah. like skates and sticks. Yeah, it's so expensive. expensive. Some of these expensive. things are wildly expensive. All right, it's, it's great that you had that experience. All right, I'll talk it, to you it, later on the show. Good. I'm the last person in America, the last oh. old father to have what? everybody else is listening to me going, get out of the house, get out of your attic, Will Bond, and go watch some AAU. That's so right. what I just did. I'll talk to you later. Michael Thanks, Wilbon, so. boys and girls. Uh, we'll be back with Jeff Passan. I'm Tony Kornheiser. You're listening to The Tony Kornheiser Show. Once again, this is Chris Leggett and the Copper Line. And Chris Leggett has a website, chrisleggett.com. And in Richmond, folks can catch Chris live at Brambley Park Winery on Saturday, July 16th. That's this coming Saturday. Is it not? Yeah. This is a yes. song called Heartbreak Advice. Chris Leggett and the Copper Line. Michael, if people like Chris Leggett and the Copper Line want to send in their original music or have their friends do it with their permission, how do they do it? Send us your music by emailing it to jingles at tonykornheisershow.com. Jeff Passan joins us now. Jeff wrote a big piece about starting pitching and the change in starting pitching. We just heard Wilbon talk about how old he feels. I'm older than Wilbon. And the starting pitching of my youth was very simple. Once every fourth day, a workhorse went out there and gave you at least seven and usually nine. The names like Don Newcomb and Robin Roberts and later on Tom Seaver and Jim Palmer and Steve Carlton, um, Bob Gibson. Like they pitched 25, 30 complete games in a year. And they never had arm trouble. Nolan Ryan. They never had arm trouble, and they pitched 300 innings. They never had arm trouble. I don't want to talk too much, but Jeff, what is the state of starting pitching? Because it is not what I remember. I don't want to use the word dire because that adds emotion to this, and I'm trying to be sensible about it because I'm 41 years old. I grew up in a time when complete games weren't an expectation necessarily, mm-hmm. but they also weren't an, uh, an anomaly. And that's what it's become now. Um, the, the diminishing returns, not just on starting pitching, Tony, but on pitching altogether. And the expectation for pitchers has been lowered to the point where they're simply not doing as much as they could. And the, the story about this, it's, it's about two things. Um, it's about fear and it's about analytics. And the fear in this situation comes from the fact that arm injuries and the diagnosis of them uh, has uh, gone up significantly to the point where what they've done is agreed this idea that throwing them less is uh, likelier to keep them healthier. And that's just not true. That I was going to ask, is, is there scientific proof of that? 
No, no, <laughs> there's not. And and we've gotten to the point now where not only are they being asked to do less than they did before, they're not being asked to do as much as they could. The The fear has neutered the starting pitcher to the point where you have guys now being taken out of games before they reach 100 pitches when they are not just smarter, not just better trained, but more capable of going deeper into games, I think, than they were in the past and just not being utilized in that matter out of fear that they're going to be injured. Um, the second part of this is analytics, and I'm not going to try and make analytics a boogeyman here, but the, the reality is this goes back to the mid-2010s when uh, a guy named Mitchell Lichtman wrote a story and that story talked about what he called the times through the order penalty. And you hear about this a lot now from managers and even from players who, who have adopted this group think where uh, the third time through the order, it's true. The statistics for hitters when they see a starting pitcher for the third time are better. Um, they're significantly in a lot of cases better. Uh, and yet that's, been the excuse that's been used to cut off starting pitching you know rare is the starter who's allowed to go through the order the third time now it's almost a privilege that you have to earn like a teenager who does enough chores where he or she can get the car on Friday night and uh, managers are extremely loath to give that privilege to anybody but the most seasoned starter so when you see a guy Tony, like Sandy Alcantara with the Miami Marlins, who regularly has pitched in the seventh inning, eighth inning, even had three complete games this year and leads Major League Baseball by a country mile in innings pitched. He's the outlier, even though, frankly, he should be the rule. Because beyond this emotional attachment we have, those of us who have seen starting pitchers be central figures in the game, I think there's a compelling argument to be made why the starting pitcher is important, and it goes back to the fact that baseball doesn't have a whole lot of stars right now, and we've taken the leading man out of the game. He's been, uh, you know, it's almost like efficiency has made him a relic. This is a very interesting thing, and I understand the analytics involved, and I understand the fear factor, and it does me no good to say, well, what if Warren Spahn came up now? Because Warren Spahn's not, it's not going to be allowed, he's not going to be allowed to do it. But the biggest star in baseball, right? Warren Spahn, if he came up now, Tony, would never have thrown more than five or six innings in a minor league star. Yeah, just absurd. Right. they're, they're, They're breeding what they have at the big leagues right now, because especially when right. they're younger, you want to talk about kid gloves. I mean, if you hmm. you will not see a complete game in the minor leagues from a prospect. You just so, won't. And so how can you expect guys to go deep into games when they're taught that going deep into games is not an imperative? So let me get to this. The biggest star in baseball right now is Shohei Otani. It's because he pitches, and it's because he pitches deep into games. If he only went four innings, it wouldn't be a big deal. It's that Shohei Otani can beat you two ways, and he's the only guy who can do that. I don't know that there's any scientific proof, as we said before, that any of this stuff works with starting pitchers. And I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying they're being babied, but I'm curious about this. 
surely there are some managers, surely there are even some general managers, or maybe there aren't, who can stand up and say, you know, I'm going to try this a different way because that's how we got to here. Somebody tried it a different way. You know, the, 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 for me, the big thing was the Kansas City Royals when they won the World Series, and they just kept trotting people in there every single inning. I went, wow, this is new. And then that mentality took over. But is there some, aren't there people out there that you've talked to that say, I'm not doing it this way because I think the other way is a better way? The problem with doing that is that this has filtered its way all the way down to the youth apparatus of the game. Um, You know, guys, guys are taught particular things at young ages in order to be seen by scouts. You need to have velocity and you need to have spin and spin efficiency. And uh, you need to be able to, you know, the execution of pitches has become a mantra among pitchers. And you need to be able to execute and that execution uh, especially for younger players, doesn't go a whole lot beyond 100 pitches because at the high school and college level, coaches, generally speaking, have been scared into not abusing guys. It's almost, you know, the pendulum had swung so far in the wrong direction because if we want to talk about uh, being babied now, we have to talk about being abused, which is what was happening to pitchers before we had a better sense of what's going on inside the arm and and the pendulum was swinging back in the other direction right guys used to you know back sandy koufax's era guys would throw 160 170 pitches at yeah. the start yeah and, and and they were doing this we we need to note this the vast majority were doing this at far lower velocities than they are right now so the stress and the strain on the arm wasn't quite the same the the arm injuries of the past were repetitive. They were overuse injuries. The arm injuries right now, generally speaking, are from excessive stress and strain because they're throwing so damn hard because we're seeing 90 plus mile per hour sliders ripped off and guys are throwing regularly. You know, you see a hundred mile per hour fastball today, Tony, it, it doesn't make your eyes bulge quite the way that it used to. And that is a direct consequence, I think, of being asked to do less in terms of volume. What pitchers realize is if we're going to be in for a finite amount of time, then we need to squeeze every single thing out of that finite number of pitches we can. And so that's where you saw the max effort era of pitching ushered in. Pitchers said, we're going to go out there and we're going to let it eat for as long as our managers allow us to. And that's why the injuries haven't changed, because guys are going in there, they're throwing max effort, and max effort throwing, generally speaking, leads to more arm injuries. It's just a consequence of of physics, of the body, of the frailty that uh, lies within each arm. There there is an antidote to this. There is an antidote to this, and it is very simply cap the pitching staff. Only allow 10 pitchers. Only allow 11 pitchers. And that will change everything. What are the – it's not my idea. It's Theo Epstein's idea. Um, But I I endorse the – I'm not endorsing the idea that I think it's great for baseball. I endorse it if you want to change it. If you want to go back to what you had, if you want Warren Spahn – if you want people yep. like that, that's how you do it. Well, does that have any traction to your mind? Uh, 10 will never happen. 
uh, 11 is going to be tough because we, we have to look at the present mindset of front offices across baseball. Uh, this year, at the beginning of the season, um, Major League Baseball teams, because the season started late, because there was a shortened spring training, were allowed to have a larger staff. And eventually, at the end of April, I believe, there was a plan to cut back staffs to a maximum of 13 pitchers. Um, general managers were not happy with this and complained. And I believe that deadline got pushed back twice to shorten the staff to 13. So the idea of getting down to 11 yeah. uh, at this moment is folly. And, and the problem with this is that there are some teams out there, and, and you know, I'm going to single out Tampa Bay and Milwaukee and Cleveland as three teams that have uh, they haven't cracked pitching necessarily, but they've done a really good job at developing major league quality pitchers, and all of them abide by pretty similar approaches, which is that our starter is going to give us two really good times through the lineup, and then we're going to match up you to death. Um, and, and that has left us in a place where teams realize, hey, in this environment where the Los Angeles Dodgers can have a $250 million payroll in the New York Yankees and the New York Mets and so on and so forth, we in small markets like Tampa, like Milwaukee, like Cleveland, need competitive advantages and ways to survive. And we figured out that this is a way we can be relevant. Um, teams that are rebuilding and are trying to figure out their pitching staffs of the future have been able to piecemeal through entire seasons with large bullpens and and with a, a number of guys. You know, you look at the end of the year, Tony, most pitching staffs have had 20 to 25, you know, upward of 30 guys who have thrown on them just because the option rules allow them yeah. to shuttle guys between the big leagues and AAA. And so giving this up right now, even if a general manager knows that it is better for the game writ large, it's a hard thing selfishly, personally, to give up in this moment because, frankly, they feel like it's their only path toward winning and their only mandate is to win, not to look out for the health of the game. It's very interesting. It is. I appreciate your time on this. And I'll just, just as an example, the starting pitcher, who I assume will be the starting pitcher for the National League because the game's in Dodger Stadium, Gonsolin, has 16 starts this year in a total of 88 and two-thirds innings. That's five a game. That's five, five plus. It, it's just, and he's 11 and 0. He's yep. 11 and 0. But, you know, that's not the 11 and 0 of Bob Gibson 11 and 0. Because he's getting now, out of there in the fifth, and you know, like in the sixth inning, he's out, right? Yeah, I mean, it's it, just it's just different. Yeah, and and listen, I I'm not I'm not a person who's going to try and sit here and romanticize about how things were because there were these stars. Because remember, there was there there is a graveyard of arms. It's a it's different game. Know, it's a different that game. We don't know about because that's right. Because they never pitched long it, enough. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, That's and right. and uh, right now, to me, the the best argument in favor of the starting pitcher going longer um, is you know Theo Epstein made this in the story. You want a guy whose name is up on the marquee. You want the starting pitching matchup to actually mean something 
and not just be guys who are going to get pulled after four and two thirds because we feel like we can go match up the rest of the way. Yeah. You know, you Amazing. want you want the starting pitching matchup to really matter because in baseball, the best player in the world can be on your team and you're going to see him only four times in a game. You're going to see him 11% of the time at the plate. If you have the starting pitcher, if you have the leading man, if you have someone out there who is creating the action, baseball is the only sport where the, the defensive side is the one that actually creates the action. Well, give them some gravitas, give them more than they've gotten out. Certainly, especially when they can handle it. And you got to change your entire infrastructure. You've got to change the expectation of pitchers and, this is something that would take a half decade to, to filter down through the minor leagues and to get working, but it's time worth the investment. Thank you. This is good. Happy to do this. Thanks, Jeff. Talk soon. Thank you. Thanks, Tony. Look forward to it. Jeff Passan. It's interesting. It's just a completely different game. And if you want to know, if you say, are there other games that have changed like that? Yeah. The three-point shot has changed the game of basketball utterly. It's utterly changed it. There are people like me that think, let's stop it. Go back to only two-point baskets. Let's stop this. This is nonsense. But, again, they'll say, old man, shut up. We'll take a break. I'll shut up during the break. Uh, We'll come back with email and jingle. I'm Tony Kornheiser. This is the Tony Kornheiser Show. Tony Kornheiser Show. dog has got a pee I've been watching his biscuit is pacing and sniffing and making eyes at me It's been so lonely since Al Michaels moved away So Greg if you're able come join me with Mabel it's such a lovely day Go on and call her get your hat and shoes on Go on and leash her in case we see a stray Bashan, cause I'm the only one this is so great. with my dog for you. It's Kirsten and singing. I'm the so good. only one who's ready to go walking with you. So come on, Greg, let's have some fun. Just bring some baggage to clean up till all our butchers business is done. It's a fantastic vocal by Kirsten Onstad. This comes from Elliot Olshansky, who obviously wrote the music. From the moment Greg Garcia mentioned Walking Dogs with Melissa Etheridge, and that's a Melissa Etheridge song, of course. Yes. I knew that the show needed a Melissa Etheridge-based jingle about Walking Dogs. When I didn't get it right away, it felt like the moment had passed, but your additional detail about Al Michaels inspired me to get back to it. Greg himself assisted by providing the name of the dog, and I'm delighted to have Kirsten Onstad playing the role of Miss Etheridge on this jingle based on the first Melissa Etheridge song I heard and still one of my favorites. Best regards from Suffolk County, where I don't have any famous companions when walking my dog past. But I'm happy to have the opportunity to tell you she weighs 55 pounds, Elliot Olshansky. That's brilliant. Yes. Okay, that's brilliant. Do you have stuff from Greg on this? Yes, so Elliot tweeted I that have to out. Say this. Like Greg has sent me. Name. Greg has sent me. The dog's name is Mabel. Um, Greg has sent me his new show. Oh, it's a show. It. Oh, I have to watch. Very excited about yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. So Elliot tweeted that out, and then Greg responded, This is very funny. If Melissa sees this before I get a chance to explain it to her, she's going to be very confused. At which point, Melissa Etheridge responds, 
LOL, I was confused, but now I see it's you, neighbor. Well, that kind of explains it. I'm home in two weeks expecting full explanation next time I walk my dog. <laughs> I, I really hope, I really hope that Greg is able to play Kirsten's song for Melissa Etheridge because that is an honor to Melissa Etheridge oh, to yeah. do it in her style and her voice. I think she probably could access it from Twitter because I think when Elliot posted it, I think he had the, the song embedded in it. It's really but, great. Yeah, I mean, that's, that is it's a really huge tribute great. to Melissa Just Etheridge. Great. Yeah. What's the Bethesda Bagels ad? Uh, Bethesda Bagels, we love them. You will as well. Just go to BethesdaBagels.com uh, for the location in the D.C. area nearest you and you'll be thrilled. Sandwiches today. Very yes, exciting. always love them. That's it for us. Before we get to the mailbag, let me just say we ate and ate at a hot dog stand. We danced around to a rocking band, and when I could, I gave that girl a hug in the tunnel of love. You'll never know how great a kiss can feel when you stopped at the top of a Ferris wheel when I fell in love down at Palisades Park. you got to be 70 years old to remember <laughs> Freddie Boom Boom Cannon and Palisades Park, but that's a song out of my youth. Born Freddie Piccarillo, and you know what town he was born in? You'll love this. Revere. Revere. <laughs> Revere. Thanks to our guests today. This is a very good show. Wilbon and Jeff Passon. Thanks to our sponsors, Sunday and SeatGeek. Remember, you can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and Odyssey. Get the show through Apple Podcasts. Please leave us a review. Great thanks to Elliot Olshansky and Kirsten Olmstead. Big thank you to Mr. C from the Blue Sky Puppet Theater. The boys loved the show Ooh. this past Friday, and Liz tried her best to explain La Cheeserie to the camp director. <laughs> Oh, because she was recognized. No, I don't think she was. Maybe the... I don't know. I don't know how this... I don't know how the connections were made, but I think the boys got a la cheeserie. Okay. Oh, that's great. From Brian in Celebration, Florida. I believe the two English majors sitting at Uncle Benny's table will appreciate the name of the yearbook from my alma mater, Glenelg High School in Glenelg, Maryland, The Palindrome. From Steve DeHamel. My high school yearbook is known as Skipper's Log, as we are the North Kingston Skippers, a bayside fishing town in Rhode Island. Our mascot was a peacoat, a tired student. I had a peacoat when I was in college with a giant paper mache head that used to terrorize small children. Hopefully it's been retired. Also, my mom used to brag how she had a date with the original Tarzan, Johnny Weissmuller, and I once delivered yellow roses from Tony Orlando to Dinah Shore while she was dating Burt Reynolds. Yeah, that Burt Reynolds, who Greg has, of course, bought Burt Reynolds a stationery and sends me letters signed your dead friend Burt Reynolds which is very funny from Steve Durbin Columbia, Missouri please tell me that the tagline for your high school yearbook patches was dodge, duck, dip, dive and dodge patches of Houlihan yeah from Bill Baker in Hinesburg, Vermont I know few who appreciate some good old pretentiousness more than Mr. Tony my high school yearbook from Orford High School in Orford, New Hampshire was called Flumine. We pronounced it Flumine, F-L-U-M-I-N-E, or Flumine, or Flumine, I don't know. We pronounced it Flumine, Latin for beside the river, since our school resided next to the Connecticut River. To add to the pretension, yours truly was the class of 1984 valedictorian. The story all falls apart when I tell you my class size was 18 students. <laughs> Smallest school in the state, and it closed in the 90s. I was the starting point guard for the 1983 class. Four basketball finalists. At least I have that. Boys basketball. Uh, from DG. Bayside High School. Class of 1967. Yearbook was Triangle. 1600 in graduation. I knew them all. Shabbat Shalom. <laughs> Regards, DG. Uh, it's always so great. From Greg in Auburn, Washington. Graduated from Idaho Falls High School in Idaho Falls, Idaho. A few decades back. Three to be exact. Yearbook was named The Spud. Fitting for a state whose license plate reads Famous Potatoes. From Michael R. Orange Grove High School, Orange Grove, Texas, home of the Bulldogs. The Bark. Ooh, I like that. The Bulldogs. Mary Faye Randolph, Austin, Texas. My school yearbook was and is the afterthought. My school is L.C. Anderson High School. 
Our newspaper's the edition. I wrote and edited for both. High school journalism. Ain't nothing like it. No, there's nothing like it. High school journalism. Uh, from Scott Feist in New Baden, Illinois. R.L. Thomas High School in Webster, New York, class of 76. Reveille. Only God knows why. And then I joined the military and learned just what the hell Reveille was. <laughs> Claire Natola, Newman School, Boston, Massachusetts, 86. As a devoted fan of Bruce Springsteen, I submitted the following paraphrase of a Thunder Road lyric to be printed under my yearbook photograph in 1986. My graduation gown lies in rags at your feet. However, the school never told us there was a character limit, and they deleted in rags. What the hell is the point, then? My graduation gown lies at your feet just made me sound like an aspiring stripper. 36 <laughs> years later, I'm still bitter. Yeah, I hold a grudge like nobody's business. Our yearbook title, Rising. No, Bruce didn't give his 2002 album the same title just to rub it in. From Wayne Hickenbottom in Austin, Texas. Hope the yearbook thread is still going. I had no idea this would happen. <laughs> and no idea. Yes. I went to Franklin Pierce High School in Tacoma, Washington. The yearbook was the Michael Possen. Michael Possen. The name derives from the names of the four original primary schools, Midland, Collins, Parkland, and Central Avenue that provided students at high school. It may be this kind of creativity that resulted in no famous graduates of this institution. <laughs> and from Joe in Indianapolis, my high school yearbook was called The Lowlian. After all, I went to Lowell Senior High School in Lowell, Illinois. Lowell, Indiana. Eat it, Patches. Eat it. <laughs> if you're out on your bike tonight. Oh, wait, 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 wait. I got one more. Oh, this is important. Um, from Scott, organic or organic with a K at the end from Vernon, Connecticut. Can you let DG know I'm trying to reach him? He's not returning my calls and I need to connect with him to return your fast pass, which I borrowed from him a little while back. If you're on your bike tonight, everyone, as always, do wear white. Come on now. That means cool everybody out. just cool out. Will you cool out, everybody? Shut up, Nick. <laughs>
that there's only so much I'm making to say And it wasn't so much the heartbreak Than it was the being all alone Getting stuck in my head Feeling rather be dead Trying to take in the words my mama said Make it. 